one of the friends of our church, Ken Boa, talks about living life backwards. And what he means by that is living today in light of that day, in light of our, the time when we stand before our Lord. We are to anticipate that in the faithfulness in which we live out our lives day by day now. We've been studying through the book of Romans, and I'm going to be jumping into the deep end today, um, as if we haven't been doing that. But uh, there, there is something that's a little, a little detail that's in the text that, it is, that is easy to overlook, but it's both important and a neglected doctrine. It has to do with the judgment that believers will undergo at some point after Christ returns. So we're going to be talking today, there we go, we're going to be talking today about the believer's judgment. And if what I said just surprises you, uh, if, if you have never thought about that or thought, no, 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 wait a minute, everything's going to be equal, then you're in the right place today. Uh, as believers, we rejoice in the truth that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But if we assume that no condemnation means no evaluation, we're very, very wrong. Romans 14, uh, verse 10 says, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Then verse 12 says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to the Lord. There seems to be this strange assumption that when we get to heaven, everyone's going to enjoy the same status and nothing that we do in this life is going to matter at all. Wrong. But Gary, aren't there only two kinds of people saved and lost? Well, yes, ultimately. There are only two final destinations. There are only Christians and non-Christians. But that does not mean that followers of Jesus have no accountability before Jesus or that heaven will be the same for us all. Those who believe that once you're saved, it doesn't matter how you live, are wrong. True believers will receive rewards for faithfulness and experience, I believe, loss of reward and perhaps shame for unfaithfulness. Maybe that gets your attention. Um, Today we're going to be studying the doctrine of the believer's judgment before God. And when we hear the word judgment, I think that oftentimes um, the image that comes to mind of judgment includes charges that are leveled, evidence that's given, a verdict that's sought, whether it's a pronouncement of, of guilty or innocence, not, not guilty, and then sentencing. The biblical judgments are not like that. For unbelievers, the charge has already been leveled sinner. The evidence has already been given. The verdict has already been rendered guilty, without excuse, without excuse, under sin. This is what we've been going through in the book of Romans. John 3.18 says, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And the sentence has already been pronounced. The wages of sin is what? Death. It's eternal death. What remains for, belief, for unbelievers is 
listen, a judgment for the severity of their punishment as they stand before God. What the Bible calls the great white throne judgment. I'm just going to read to you from Revelation 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books were opened, and the dead were judged from the things written in the books, according to their deeds. And then all the unbelieving dead were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. What's interesting is that there are no believers at all at the great white throne judgment. We will not be there. But there is another judgment for believers, commonly called the judgment seat of Christ. And this judgment is, bef- is where we stand before the Savior, that is the one who paid the, the penalty so that we would not go to the great white throne, so that we would not be judged for our sins or bear that guilt for the one who made it happen that it is finished. So that's what that judgment is. Is going to be when we stand before Jesus our walk with him will be judged not our sins or our guilt I'm gonna say some things today that some of you may have never heard so here's my deal with you here's my deal I want you to be like those Bereans that are described in the book of Acts as those who search the scriptures daily to see whether or not these things were so I, I want you to, to, to take some of the passages that I'm given, uh, going to be giving and some of those that are already in your bulletin notes and, and study them out your, for yourself if this is a new teaching to you. And, and I want you to let me, add, let me add this statement. Because this topic has to do with prophecy and end times, there are questions about it that we don't have answers to. Uh, I have questions about it. that I'd, you know, Exactly where will this take place? Uh, I think I have an idea of when, but that's not explicitly told us. There are suggestions for those things. But in in my opinion, there may be more, because this is at end times, there may be more to our topic than we see here. That doesn't mean there would be less to our topic than we see here. So although now we see through a glass darkly, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, that doesn't diminish the clarity and the reality of what we do see. Does that make sense? So that's the way I'm going to be approaching this. If someone, and if someone should ask, you know, why, why bother studying this if there's not that much about it in the Bible? Well, first of all, it is in the Bible. Secondly, there is more about it in the Bible than you may realize. And third, What is there looks fairly clear. And fourth, the judgment seat of Christ then has to do with why we remain faithful now. This is important. So here's my approach. First of all, I want to show you a number of texts that indicate that there seems to be more to heaven than just a destination. Secondly, I want to examine three main texts that deal with the judgment seat of Christ. And then third, third, I want to try to answer a few practical questions that accompany this doctrine as much as I can. So, first, I want to show you a number of texts that, and, and I'm showing them to you without their context. That's why you need to study these things out for yourself that indicate that there's more to heaven than just uh, a, a destination. For example, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven, which implies that selfless service does bring a reward. You know, when you, when you, when you're, when you go and you do these things secretly, selflessly, not to be seen of men, if you are seen of men, you have your reward. That was it. You got seen by men. Big whoop. Matthew 10. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. He who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Mark 10. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you which implies great among you implies a different standing shall be your servant. Luke 6, be glad in that day and leap for joy. I lost my place here. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. Not here, in heaven. For the, in the same way the fathers used to treat the prophets... And then Luke 6, 35, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. 1 Corinthians, sorry about that. 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. 2 Corinthians 5, 10, for we and he's referring to all believers, must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. This is more of a general principle that applies to both believers and unbelievers, uh, the fact that God does hold us accountable. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Then there's this interesting passage in James 3, 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, which implies a more rigorous standard of judgment among believers. This is one of the reasons... I did not want to become a pastor and, or a Bible teacher. The only thing that was worse than becoming one was not becoming one. 1 John uh, 2.28, little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, this warning makes the most sense, makes the most sense if there is indeed that judgment or evaluation. Second John, verse 8, watch yourselves that you might not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Revelation 14, 13, I heard a voice from heaven saying, write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Not that their deeds secure their salvation, but their deeds, uh, they, they do more than display salvation. Here, they follow them there. Revelation 22, verse 12. 
Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. There are those who say, well, you know what? The reward is eternal life. And in some cases, in some, with some texts, I think that is true. But I didn't include those texts in the ones I just showed you, like the crown of life texts. These passages seem to me to extend salvation, uh, extend beyond salvation into sanctification and connect our reward to the choices that we make in our walk with the Lord here and now. And let, let me add, for, for some people it just seems unthinkable to suggest that there may be a different status for some versus others in heaven. That just seems rude. But heaven is not celestial socialism. Many of you enjoy the writings of theologian John Frame, so I thought I'd bring in the big guns. John Frame said, the rewards that God will give his people also serve as motivation. Some Christians think it unseemly to consider the rewards that God offers to his faithful servants. Certainly our works do not merit the rewards of heaven, but God promises them to us, and he often uses them to motivate our service. The Christian ethic is not a Kantian duty for duty sake. And then he goes off in this long spiel about Kant and the categorical imperative. He's doing what John Frame does. It's not duty for duty's sake with no consideration for a blessing. And then about a thousand pages later, <laughs> he said, wrote this, when Jesus comes, we will receive a reward and we shall look forward to that reward in our labors here. That reward should motivate us to good works here and now. Many scripture texts emphasize this. Our Father will reward his children not only in this life, but in eternity as well. By the way, there are also verses that indicate that there are levels of punishment in hell. This is not our topic today. Um, but I wanted you to be aware of the, the fact that there is a kind of of strange symmetry here. In Matthew eleven twenty two, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, speaking of the cities in which Jesus had, had been and had performed his miracles. In Mark uh, 12, verse 40, Jesus speaking of the scribes who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation and uh, Luke 20 says exactly the same thing, verse 47. These will receive greater condemnation. Luke 12, and that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. And here, I, 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 how do you unpack that? But there seems to be an, an accountability for the unsaved that's connected with knowledge of what God's word was. Revel Romans chapter 2, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There's wrath and then there's stored up wrath. In 2 Corinthians 11, Satan's servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end shall be according to their deeds. 
Hebrews 10, 29. How much severer punishment, severer punishment, do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? Revelation 20 at the great white throne judgment. Uh, and, and the word, in, in, by the way, in Revelation 20 is thronos, not bema, judgment seat. The dead were judged from the books according to their deeds. Now, that's not our topic today. But I did want you to see that there is this kind of strange symmetry of the judgments on both sides of the great divide. It makes perfect sense that the destiny of Hitler versus the destiny of, say, Socrates would not be identical. The choices that unbelievers make in this life will matter. How? That's another study. So, I wanted to show you a number of texts that indicate that there's more to heaven than just a destination. Secondly, I want us to examine three passages, three main texts to learn what we can about the judgment seat of Christ. All three are actually connected with the city of Corinth. One is in 1 Corinthians, one is in 2 Corinthians, and then there's our text in Romans. How's Romans connected with Corinth? Well, Romans was written from Corinth. So when Paul ministered at Corinth, he was dragged before the Bema, the judgment seat of the magistrate. Listen to um, uh, these, uh, these statements in Matthew chapter 8, I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 18, verse 12. But while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the Bema, the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades people to worship God according to the law. And then down at verse 16, uh, Gallio was having nothing to do with it, and he drove them away from the Bema. And then the Romans took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and started beating him in front of the Bema, the judgment seat. So there is the term Bema. And it, the term Bema was used actually in two different ways. It was, at least, it was used in a forensic sense, legally, where uh, defendants would stand before a magistrate sometimes for trial. So you've got that legal sense. Does that make sense? You've got that legal sense. And another way that Bema was used was uh, it was used to describe uh, the uh, victors uh, in the Isthmian Games. Uh, Corinth was famous for the, the games of the Isthmus of Corinth, and um, uh, it was second only to the Olympic Games. And the apostle, we can place the timing of the epistles and the games, and Paul was there for the Isthmian games. So when he writes about running the race, beating the air, um, and when he writes about the, the Bema, the Bema was the place where the victors would come and receive the crown, receive the, the garland. Not one, as Paul says, we don't strive for one that's perishable, but one that's imperishable. So that's, that's the idea of uh, the Bema. Now turn with me to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. This is the first of our three passages. Romans chapter 14. We've already looked at this carefully. 
the context is weaker brother issues. But I want you to look at verse 4. Who were you to judge the servant of another? Now look, to his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look down at verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. He gives thanks to God. He does not for the Lord. He does not eat. He gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one of us dies for himself. So this is, this is an eternal view for what we're doing here and now. It's for the Lord. Then you get down to verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all, no exceptions, will all stand before the Bema of God. That's the word, the Bema. And then in verse 12, we read, so then each one of us, and it's not all here, it's each. All refers to us collectively. Each refers to us individually. Every one of us individually, individually, each one of us, will give an account of himself. Not, I, I'm not giving an account of you, and you're not giving an account of me. Of himself to God. So, when you stand before him at the Bema, what will you say? Second text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So turn with me there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Here Paul discusses our present sufferings in light of their future glory. And, I, you know, I, just, I, I couldn't help as, as uh, Mark was reading this, to, to not think of Jim Ryan, Tracy's dad, not think of how wonderful it is to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord and, and with an end to suffering. But this ends with this wonderful goal. He said, our ambition is to be pleasing to him. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse 8. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our goal or our ambition, whether to be home or absent, you know, what, whether we're here or whether we are standing in his presence, here's our goal. We want to be pleasing to him. I want to, what I do now to be pleasing to him then. We want to be pleasing to him. For we, all Christians, must all, no exception, appear before the Bema of Christ so that each one individually may be recompensed for the, his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, the word recompense is actually a fairly technical term in the Greek languages. It refers to receiving wages. That's why some render it receive as his due. The, the point here is this is not tied to grace. This is receiving as your due from the life that you have lived. That's what the Bema will entail. We have received his grace in just being there. But this has to do with our faithfulness and our walk. So uh, that, that's what this is about. That's what the, the verb recompense has in mind. According to, his, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, I don't know about you. I've never been hauled into traffic court for staying within the speed limit. 
But you know what? God's going to reward for good. What does it mean for bad? We'll get to that uh, in just a moment. So <clears throat> the Bema has actually already been taught about uh, by the Apostle Paul in uh, uh, Romans, I'm sorry, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So let's, I, I just want to focus one more thing on the Bema. thought you might like to see this because when we got back from the Greece trip, I showed you this picture, okay? There's Rachel. It, is that Aristos? Okay. Uh, uh, I, I wasn't sure which brother it was. That's, that's Mark. Okay. Aristos was the one who just got married. Uh, there, that's Mark Petru right here. You know who that is. And there's a cutie. And right behind us, that is a canal that goes through, uh, the, through the isthmus of Corinth. And I took this picture at the same time of boats going through the canal. Here's an overview of it from the, the website of uh, Corinth. Um, that canal was, was uh, dug in the uh, late 1800s. But here is where it's placed. Um, and uh, there is the city of Corinth right in there. And here is where the Isthmian game, the Isthmus right there, that's where the Isthmian games took place. And here, I don't think you can see it very well, but here you have, uh, this is our, our group we were, when we were there working in Greece, um, uh, having this day of uh, sightseeing. But right there, we are in Corinth at the Isthmus, and we are standing at the Bema. It still stands. That is the judgment seat. That is where Paul was dragged before Gallio. So this is the image of what he has in mind, is a place of, of, of uh, legal disputes, but it's also a place of receiving rewards. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let's turn there, it's our third text, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, I'm jumping into the middle of a context. Paul has been talking about the divisions, the factions that exist in Corinth. You know, some are saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of, of Peter, I'm of Christ. And, and he says, you're just acting like fleshly men. Don't, you know, this, we are God's fellow workers. And he gives the analogy of working in a field. And then he changes the analogy to the uh, fellow, con, fellow uh, workers to construct a building. And we read in verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, and then here's where it changes, God's building. Here's the shift in the image. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, and the word master builder is the word architectone, the architect. As a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, he took the gospel there, and another is building upon it, that's Apollos or Peter or whomever. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. It's a little fuzzy in here, but what he's saying 
is that ultimately when you think about it the foundation that everybody is pointing to that we stand on is Jesus Christ now everybody who is saved has that foundation that's the same what we build on that foundation is different verse 12 if any man builds on the foundation with gold silver precious stones wood hay straw each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work not the quantity but the quality of each man's work and we don't know exactly what this is going to look like is is, is god somehow going to translate our motives and our faithfulness into uh, physical objects that have degrees of combustibility that correspond to our faithfulness? I don't think so. This is, this is a picture of God as he judges and he, the one who knows all things. And he gives the picture of, of gold, silver, precious stones, which all gold, silver, and precious stones are things that are forged in secret and have to be mined out. Wood, hay, and straw are things that are out there on the surface and everybody can see. So, wood, hay, and straw are also positive building materials, right? You can build good stuff of wood. So, these are not necessarily six things, three of which are good and three of which are bad. They are six things and you could look at the a house built with the wood and say wow that's a beautiful thing but i would suggest to you that they that the house built of wood hay or straw as the houses were in that day are a picture of maybe good things done for bad reasons evil reasons self-centered reasons motives lack of faithfulness so at any rate and he he continues with the picture if any man's work is burned up i'm sorry verse 14 if any man's work on which which is built on it remains he will receive a reward if any man's work is burned up he will suffer loss but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire he's making very clear that you understand this is not salvation or loss of salvation He's still going to be saved, yet so is through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. This is somebody who pretends to be a builder but is not one at all. So here you have the, the uh, picture that he's laying before us. Uh, you've got the foundation that's laid, which is Jesus Christ, and then we build upon that foundation I would imagine my guess is that um, some of you are building on a foundation with the faithful things that you do unto the Lord that nobody knows about you're storing up for yourself right now rewards in heaven remember Jesus's parable uh, in Matthew 25 where the king gave rewards to his puzzled followers these righteous people ask lord when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and we gave you a drink when did we 
uh, see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Long-term faithfulness. It's not easy. A hundred-yard dash is a lot more appealing than a marathon. One writer put it pretty well. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us back to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 bill for quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 25 cents there. (laughs) Some quarters are obvious, like your time in prayer, your time in the Word, but also going to a committee meeting, helping your neighbor, listening patiently to people in a nursing home, choosing to be understanding with that waitress, practicing the one another's of Scripture. You remember those. All of those that we find, I mean, you get out your concordance and look at the one another's of Scripture. Of course, the one that is most, that recurs the most time, which I did not put on here except one time, is love one another. You You want rewards in heaven? You want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Do that. Do that. Do these things. He's told us how it can work. Now, what I've done is, so far, show you that a number of texts indicate there's more to heaven than just a destination. Secondly, we've, we've looked at very quickly three main texts uh, to, to explore a little bit more about the judgment seat of Christ. Each one of those worth a couple of sermons each. You know we could do that. I want to close by trying to answer some practical questions that accompany this doctrine, at least as much as I can. Uh, It's true that Paul says to the Corinthians, by by the way, he says to the Corinthians, (laughs) the Bema people, now we see through a glass darkly, um, but then face to face. Uh, Now I know in part, but then I will know even as I am known. So he's got this now, but then, now, but then, Thing going with them. Uh, and, and so I, I do have some uh, glass darkly questions. I've got some unanswered questions of our own. But that doesn't mean we don't have biblical perspectives to tackle them. So the first one is, is kind of basic. Exactly what is the nature of this judgment? And I think we've already answered that somewhat, but I do want to pose it in between some extremes because there are some who view the judgment seat of Christ almost as purgatory where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't believe that's what that phrase is applying to, in my view. Uh, They they view it as an an event of such intense sorrow and and grief where unconfessed sin is exposed to universal scrutiny. And by universal, I mean that literally, scrutiny. Uh, No, no. (laughs) Our sins are paid for. They're done. It is finished. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there are those who view the judgment seat of Christ as an award ceremony where everybody's happy. Everybody gets a participation trophy. 
I think a better position is somewhere that's more mediating. While there's no punishment for sins at the Bema, we may regret opportunities lost. One person put it this way, to overdo the sorrow aspect of the judgment seat is to make heaven hell. To underdo the sorrow aspect is to make faithfulness inconsequential. And the, and the truth of the matter is, we're extrapolating now about what our emotions will be then, and we don't know. But here's an analogy that others have suggested. At a graduation ceremony, everyone graduates, but a few receive awards because of extraordinary faithfulness. Some students will know that they could have done better, but they didn't. They chose not to. And they may have regret. But the main emotion is going to be rejoicing for everyone. Maybe that, I think, is a better way of understanding it. Second question that people ask, will mama know? Will people see me being judged? Is, is the Bema a heavenly expose for celestial gossip? I've, I've heard things like, oh, no, no, no. Will my friends find out about me? Will they learn what I'm really like? My opinion, and that's all it is, my opinion, is, I, yeah, I, I think others will come to know some things about us. Our sins are dealt with. But what is this going to look like? Well, Hebrews 12 describes our present race, our present race as, being dis, as being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. And those are the people who've gone before us. They're not witnesses to us. They're witnesses of us. They're watching us run a race. I don't know why this idea of what we're really like bothers us so much. Uh, the important thing is Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Frankly, when you look in Jesus' eyes, you're not going to consider, you're not going to be aware of, you're not going to care about what anybody else thinks. It's only what Jesus thinks that matters. Only him. Third question. What kinds of things does Jesus take into account when he judges? What are the variables? I taught in college uh, in some seminary for a, a total of 26 years. Um, the way I evaluated students was spelled out on the syllabus. I handed out the first day of class. I used papers, quizzes, exams, but I am an imperfect judge. And uh, my tests were imperfect measurements. They were hit and miss of their knowledge. They were snapshots. I could never measure the difference between where a student started and where they ended. For example, if an A student who had grown up being taught the Bible, who had a great background in the Bible, uh, and, and in my subject put forth no effort and made an A minus, while a C student who had no background at all worked and worked and earned a B, there's a vast difference in faithfulness there. But I couldn't measure that. Here's the deal. God can. 1 Corinthians 4, if you're still in 1 Corinthians, look at verse four, uh, chapter 4. Let a man regard us in this manner, 
as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. Faithfulness, trustworthy. And then look down at verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes. The Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in darkness. And that may refer, actually, to the good works that were forged in secret. Like the gold, silver, and precious stones. The things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Key idea there. The motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. So, those are some of the things that God takes into account. He mentions faithfulness. He mentions motives. An accountant can glorify God as a faithful worker, living out the one another's. But you can, you can also do the right thing for the wrong reasons. A missionary in the bush can have as his goal one day, once I put in my time here, I'm going to be the head of that missions agency and travel all over the world speaking everywhere. Which one's faithful? The accountant or the missionary? God knows. Which one has sinful motives? Here's a classic case in Philippians 1, verses 14 through 17. Most of the brethren, he's speaking about Christians in Rome. He's speaking about ministers in Rome. Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. That's their motive. They're trying to cause Paul, as he says, distress in my imprisonment. Verse 17, he says, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Paul's going to let that whole thing sort itself out, the judgment seat of Christ, with those guys. God will take care of that. We have some hints in the parables about how Jesus weighs things. Um, for example, and I'll go through this rather quickly, in Luke 19, we have the story of ten servants that were given ten minus, or units of... of, of uh, of uh, uh, monetary units. Ten servants, ten minus. One servant earned ten more minus, and he was rewarded tenfold and praised by his master for his faithfulness. One servant took his ten and earned five more, and he was rewarded fivefold and praised from his master. But the servant who earned nothing was judged. In this case, I think we're to, we can assume that equal ability, equal opportunity, but unequal faithfulness, Jesus awards proportionately according to faithfulness because that was the variable in that story, faithfulness. Or change the, the equation. What about people who don't have the same abilities? There's not equal ability. Um, it, what if that variable changes? They're just not as talented. Some people are not as intellectually gifted. Some people are not as... Uh, don't have the talents, the attractiveness, or maybe have a rotten family background, whatever it might be. Some are not gifted in terms of relating to people well. Others have physical problems that hinder their abilities. Does Jesus take those things into account? In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches 
about one servant who was given five talents and earned five more. But then the second servant wasn't given five talents, he was given two talents. And he earned two more. So the five earned five, the two earned two. And I believe this relates to the natural abilities of the servant. Jesus rewards them, the king rewards them the same. The same. So with unequal ability, equal faithfulness brings equal reward. That faithful saint who's bound in a wheelchair, who has mental illness, who prays fervently for people, whatever the circumstances that you might want to put there, that person may be the one that receives the greatest reward in heaven. The issue Jesus is concerned about is not what abilities did I give you? He knows that. He gave them. It's what did you do with what I gave you? I strongly suspect that the people we identify as Christian celebrities um, down here may not be the celebrities in heaven. Okay, but what, what about people who are not born in a Christian home? Maybe they came to Christ late in life and they don't have a long time to have rewards to serve Christ. Or maybe they die young. In Matthew 20, Jesus gives the story of a landowner who hires people and pays the same wage at the end of the day to people who started out, the, who, who worked all day, were hired at the middle of the day, and were hired near the end of the day. He gives them the same wage. The landowner uh, uh, gives them all the same wage. And, and maybe this suggests that equal faithfulness to unequal opportunity brings equal reward. Now, you're, you may be, you're, maybe your brain is exploding now. The grid I'm looking through is not the purpose of those parables in those contexts, okay? The grid I'm looking through, the judgment seat of Christ, is not the purpose of those parables in their context. But I believe these stories, which are given by the one who is the judge at the Bema, are suggestions about how the judge thinks. And if so, and I believe it makes good sense, then that means that Jesus considers opportunity, ability, motives, and then rewards according to faithfulness. The judgment seat of Christ is not a competition where there's one winner, thankfully. Unlike the Olympics or the Isthmian Games, I've said this many times, God does not set limits on how holy you can become. Only you do that. There can be as many first place winners as there are participants. Quickly, how long will the rewards last? I guess you don't want it to be quickly. Um, it, do they have a heavenly shelf life? Some suggest that because in, in, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, the 24 elders cast their crowns before, Jesus, before God's throne, we will simply take our rewards and return them to God, those crowns, and, and return them to God. And then everybody will, will have equal standing. But first of all, number one, we're not the 24 elders. And number two, the image is not of relinquishing rewards. It's more a, of an ancient Near Eastern emperor to whom all other kings submit. They don't relinquish their kingdoms. They take their crowns back and they rule and reign under his authority because he's the king of kings. Most rewards seem to be related to Christ's coming kingdom, but that 
Some people say, well, it's for this thousand-year millennium, and I do believe in that, but I don't believe they're limited to that. Here's kind of a dark analogy. If the levels of punishment in hell are eternal, then probably the degrees of reward in heaven are eternal. What are the rewards exactly? Well, we've heard, well done, good and faithful sermon. That's commendation. One frequent picture is that the faithful will be given responsibilities to rule and reign with Christ. And here's another possibility. Deeper intimacy with the Lord. Deeper intimacy. Uh, When we are totally redeemed, our minds, our spirits, our emotions, when everything is redeemed, our capacity to enjoy heaven will be enhanced. But maybe it won't be enhanced equally. I don't know. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says to, to the Corinthians, that which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So clearly our capacity to experience joy in heaven will be enhanced. Maybe for some more than others, according to faithfulness. Here's the thing. As to what they are, Jesus is not limited to our imaginations. That's good news. With these perspectives in mind, until faith becomes sight, we want to serve him faithfully. And I I hope what I'm telling you is is good news after you die or until he comes. There's your, your faithfulness will be rewarded. It will make a difference. And there's one thing that I think is very, very important. The reward is always, in every case, every time, way out of proportion to the service rendered. God is that gracious. It's, it's kind of like, Daddy, I picked up my toys in my room. Wonderful, sweetheart, let's go out and buy a theme park for you to play in. So God's rewards are always, in every case, way out of proportion to the service rendered. And that's, that's great news. So what is your foundation? Jesus Christ, that's the only foundation. What are you going to build on your foundation so that one day you'll hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul said, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. When Willard Henning died in 2002, he was a little stooped-over man, 91 years old, He probably weighed 85 pounds. Uh, When World War II broke out, he was stationed on an island in the Pacific and began collecting all kinds of wildlife specimens, not realizing that that was going to become, that was the start of the best natural history museum in the Southeast. After the the war uh, was over, he went to Ohio State, got his PhD there in biology, and came to Bryan College to teach. Uh, He knew every indigenous bird to Tennessee by its call. One unique thing about Dr. Henning, he had no sense of smell. So um, 
<laughs> he'd pick up roadkill, take it to the parasitology lab for the students to, and he couldn't understand what, why they, they would go throw up. <laughs> you know, he had no sense of smell. He couldn't smell what they were smelling. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, he would take them caving, he would take students on hikes, and he would leave student athletes in the dust. They couldn't keep up with the guy. He was a true naturalist, he was so much of a naturalist that uh, uh, he would watch a flock of geese flying and be thinking about the formation and drive off the road and wreck his car. Twice. <laughs> Over the decades he taught, he taught a lot of students who went on to medical school and to the mission field and sent back things to him. And by the way, in, in the 24 years I was there, everybody who wanted to go to medical school got in. Uh, they didn't all get in their first choice, but they all got in. Dr. Henning was an amazing man, and those who taught with him were amazing uh, people. But people kept sending um, specimens back. He became a taxidermist. Schools made trips to Bryan College to see what, became, uh, what had become the Henning Natural Science Museum, best in the southeast, collected over 50 years and I double-checked on this, and I'm right, over 100,000 specimens. 100,000. Dr. Henning was a sweet, gracious little man. He was married to a lady who was not sweet and gracious, um, but he was a faithful, kind husband. He loved God. He loved God's Word, and he always attended every prayer meeting possible. He uh, was painfully shy. He was always giving his money away to people who had needs. Uh, you'd always find him in the slum areas of Dayton, uh, helping the poorest of the poor. And every Saturday morning, he'd be downtown handing out tracts and then apologizing for taking people's time when he stopped them to hand them out the track. Um, I couldn't find one, I was going to show you, I couldn't find one picture of him for the internet, not one. Was no pictures of him on the internet that I can find. When fire ravaged Bryan College on February 6, 2000, it destroyed the Henning Museum. Most of his tangible life's work went up in flames. So you have to ask yourself, okay, was it useless? What was the, was the value of his life just zeroed out? Should he have thrown up his hands and said, what's the point if death ends at all? But Colossians 3 reminds us, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And... Much of the Henning Museum is now built back. Other donations have come in. But uh, Dr. Henning went to be with the Lord in 2002. The word that describes Dr. Henning is faithful. He did his work as unto the Lord Jesus, and his work was not in vain. And in 2002, I believe he stood before the Lord and heard from the lips of Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. And I wouldn't be surprised to be in heaven one day and find Dr. Henning in charge of the heaven supernatural science 
museum, only all the specimens will be alive. I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to hear that. I want, I want to rule and reign with Christ. Rewards are to motivate us. I want all the rewards that are available, and I hope you do too, but wanting isn't getting. The choices that we make now matter now, but the point of rewards is that the choices we make now matter then. So, do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Lord, I thank you.